Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and welcome back to a brand new, super fresh, just unsealed season of Unscrewed. I have missed you. I have been glad to not be recording in the sweaty summer in my room with no windows open. So now that it's cool enough, here I am again talking to you. Uh, I'm deciding to do something a little different this season, which is I'm introducing a theme that I'm hoping will unify all the episodes this season. And I've thought about it a ton. And the theme for the season is going to be edge case. And the reason for that is, I've, as most of you know, if you've been listening to the show, I've been doing some consulting with Hashtag Open, the really rad new dating app, which you should check out. And I've been consulting with them on making community guidelines and moderation policies. And we keep talking about edge cases, right? So we'll make a rule and then someone will be like, oh, here's this thing that kind of feels like it's on the border of our rule. And those are the most interesting questions because they really force us to drill deep and think about what our actual values are, what's actionable in the world, and where we're going to draw those lines. And so I thought that it would make a provocative prompt for all of the episodes this season. And as soon as I decided that, I thought, well, obviously, we have to kick this off with Sadie Joyle, who you will remember from the classic episode, Promiscuous Bisexual Freak Show, (laughs) and who's back with an amazing new book called Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, which is in some ways all about the edge cases of femininity and what they tell us about how we feel about women and and the power of embracing them. And so, Sadie, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you. I haven't finished your book, as I confessed to you already, but I am (laughs) super obsessed with it and won't stop talking about it. It's blowing my mind every time I read it, and I'm so excited to talk to you about it. But first, we have to put you through the lightning round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So what has been making you happy this week? A book called Amateur by Thomas Page McBee. And you should really, really read it. He is on my radar to get him on the show. You should. Yes. You really should. Tell us about this book. 
It is a book about a lot of things. He's the first trans guy to box in Madison Square Garden, and that makes it sound like an I'm a guy who did the thing sports memoir, but it's really... Um, this book, Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, is about violence. And it's about masculinity to some extent. It's about how women experience male violence. He is writing, he's a guy who's written a lot about violence and masculinity as well, but he's coming at it from a different angle. The book, I find, centers a lot on his grief process. You know, he lost his mother shortly before he entered this competition. It's about the question of how do you be a guy without being the worst kind of guy? How do you deal with your own rage or your own anger or your own occasional desire to punch another fellow in the face without letting that explode your life or turn you into a bad person? It's really wonderful and just, you know, the fight is in it. The fight is not the point of it. It radiates out through his whole life and through that whole question of how you can sort of walk into violence and walk back out again with your heart intact. I just found it really wonderful. I read it in a night and it moved me really deeply. Amazing. All right. What is the best sex advice you ever received? It is that no matter what you look like or what you want, somebody else thinks that looks great and somebody else thinks that feels great. And yes. it's just, Yeah. <laughs> it's not about molding yourself into something else. It's just about introducing a culling process so that you can get to the person who wants what you want. I love this advice. It's so liberating. <laughs> who told you that? I can't even remember. Like, I'm sure that I just presented that to you as a liberatory thing. And I'm sure it was just some creepy dude, like at a Vampire the Masquerade <laughs> LARPing thing. Like, That's I'm so sure. real. That's the realest answer you could have given me. Yeah. What's been making you maddest and saddest about the sexual culture lately? The same thing that it always is. I just read the Lisa Bloom memo to Harvey Weinstein. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a shit show it's absolutely awful and it's like the two things where she's like here's how we deal with your accuser i make friends with her i give her toys i give her whatever she wants option two we create articles on the internet saying that she's a psychopathic liar yep. it's just like having the strategy laid out that clearly is so disheartening and horrifying from someone who purportedly you know? was like a victim advocate, right? A lot of her practice until now is at least supposedly about defending women. And that's why you realize that it's so horrible. That's the turn of the knife, is that she's oh. dealt enough victims that she knows what's going to help her get this. And she says that explicitly in the letter. Oh, it's so terrible. Oh. Like that'll, that'll amp up your paranoia if anything <laughs> will. You know, I have to admit, I read it and I just wrapped it in a small box and shoved it very down deep in my psyche. <laughs> oh, yeah, don't, don't unwrap it. No, Jackson. no, I, I know that's a thing. Factually, I'm aware of it. I'm just not going to yeah. deal with it. That's like the box at the end of seven. That's like the Gwyneth <laughs> Paltrow's head of your psyche. Like, just don't open it. Nope, 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 nope. What is the biggest sex myth that you used to believe but don't believe anymore this is one that like it sounds like i'm giving you depressed middle-aged person advice, <laughs> but here um, for it here for it it's that like not everybody has an orgasm every time and that's okay like if there's a substantial inequity in the relationship 
that's something you should look at. If you are just absolutely not having fun, having sex the way you're having it, that's something to look at. But it's the idea that like, you don't always have to be pressuring yourself to, you know, have the grand finale. Yeah, I don't think that's depressing. I think that's liberating too. Like you get to define pleasure the way you want to. It just sounds like, it sounds like such a bad sex myth to bust because I'm like, here's the deal, kid. Sex is bad. (laughs) (laughs) It's disappointing. And you're not going to get what you want. And that's fine. I think it's more like sex (laughs) is way less glamorous than you think it is. Yes. That's the thing is the more you're thinking about performing to some standard, the less fun you're actually going to have. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes. All right, lastly, who's somebody brave who's doing great work to unscrew the sexual culture that you want to give a shout out to? Who is someone brave? Um, I think I just read um, an article on the LEEP by a journalist who I think is, you know, probably saved my life. I got to tell you that I've heard from a gynecologist friend that the science in that article is not reliable. Really? Yeah. So I don't know what to believe about it anymore. Oh, no. Well, see, then I'm just going to I'm going to say what I always say, which is that I think that the more women talk about their bodies and their health concerns in public, the better we do. You know, (laughs) for sure. I'm glad that there is a more robust discussion. Everyone is my hero today. That means I'm your hero. It's true. I could have just said you. I could have saved a lot of time. No, it's there's actually the one rule on unscrewed is you can't say me to that question. Oh, no. Not because well, I don't love to hear that shit, but because it would be really boring if all my guests just decided to, like, kiss my ass and say me. It would not be incredibly yeah. good listening. Okay. Well, I promise not to kiss your ass, like, any further than I already Yeah, have. come on, Sadie. Cut it out. It's getting embarrassing. <laughs> Let's talk about dead blondes and bad mothers and all of the women on the edge, because I'll say this. I am also not a horror fan. I'm glad you explain a lot of shit because horror is not something I can digest. But you've made the best case for loving it that I've ever seen. And I also feel like this book is a direct sequel to Trainwreck. It really is. And it so, really is. Like, maybe let's start there. If folks want to know more about Trainwreck, they should just go back and listen to Sadie's first episode at Unscrewed, which is called Promiscuous Bisexual Freak Show. Give us the, like, 10-cent introduction to the jumping-off point of this book. Trainwreck is really about women's emotional lives. It's about how we scrutinize women's public performance and their emotional stability and how we undermine women who speak the truth about themselves or their own life stories. This book is a lot more physical. It is really directly about sexual violence and relationship violence and patriarchy, which is the underlying sort of structure or moral hegemony that mandates that violence. But structurally in each book, you're exploring those themes by talking about women who are treated as outre, basically. Right, right. Uh, This is actually a theorist called Jack Halberstam has uh, written a book called Skin Shows that was really influential on this book. And he talks about how monsters, which is what this book is about, are liminal creatures. They're edge cases. They're literally edge cases. A monster is exactly on the boundary between human and not. You know, on one side of the fence, you've got animals and objects. On the other side of the fence, you've got people and a monster. 
lives right there. The monster is the boundary. It's the liminal space that you're crossing. So I always find that when you want to talk about an oppressive structure, often oppression doesn't really pop out to you if you are conforming to your set rule. It's really only when you break the rule that you get punished. It's really only when we look at those liminal edge cases and spaces that we can start to see which rules we're breaking and what those rules aim to do, what space they aim to keep us confined in. So a monster is really frequently just a sort of supposed to be subjugated body that has gone out of control in some wild way. It often represents a phobia of women's sexual agency. It often represents a desire or a way of life that isn't conformed to some super cis-normative box or a heteronormative box. A monster is what happens right outside the edge of patriarchy. And that's why I think they're wonderful and why I love them. Because when we look at those monsters, often what we're looking at is the parts of ourselves that have been sort of lopped off by the social code, the parts of ourselves that we've become divorced from. Well, and they're also a roadmap for how to be most terrifying to the powers that be. Right. That's the other thing is that when you know what people are afraid of, that's its own form of power. When you know what you're not supposed to do, you have to ask, why am I not supposed to do it? And the answer is usually, you know, what I find the answer to be is that patriarchy, which is this sort of structure wherein all families are arranged around a male authority. A man uses a woman to create, quote unquote, his children. And, you know, this is then exported to the wider social model where everything is run by a father who rules over his sons and daughters, and women are sort of bypassed or used to do the scout work and the reproductive work. When we know what people are afraid of, then we can sort of see that patriarchy is often super, super unsustainable. It is really, really not possible to control another person's desire. You can't get to someone on the level of what they want. And it's really hard to control what goes on in another person's body. Pregnancy in particular is very ungovernable. It's often ungovernable if you are pregnant. It kills you a lot of the time. Desire and agency and reproduction aren't things that cis men have always controlled, and they aren't things that they can control, really. What they can do is create a system where we're all afraid to transgress or trespass. They can create and mandate violence that keeps us in these set reproductive and sexual roles. But we're living in an age of more and more monsters. More and more of us are choosing to reject those rules. Patriarchy is crumbling. That's why it's particularly violent and overt right now. Do I sound like I'm, you know, writing my women's studies thesis? No, I'm like, <laughs> honestly, just sitting here worshiping at the Church of Sadie right now. Like, amen to all of it. I have a bunch of questions that I'm trying to figure out what order I want to ask them. And one is one I'm curious about, which is, like, which came first, your sort of feminist understanding of the monstrous or your love of horror movies? Oh, I think it was definitely the horror movies that came first. I definitely wrote a book just so that I could write about how much I love Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> so you were always drawn to horror movies. I, I always was. And I think it's just that maybe my early life had a lot of violence in it and had a lot of sort of trauma in it. My father wasn't a particularly nice or safe man. So, you know, just to give you the basic details, he was um, he was an alcoholic and he went pretty nuts when I was three and got so violent that my mother was told by her priest, you will not live if you stay in this house. You need to get out. Wow. And 
yeah. when, the, when the literal patriarchy is telling you that it's pretty bad <laughs> i know yeah it's like yeah like when when your priest is the one getting involved yeah it's the one nice thing the catholic church ever did for me <laughs> but <laughs> um, as i got older, I found myself sort of irrationally drawn to stories about violence. I mean, this is pretty blatant, but I watched The Shining like 20 times when I was in middle school. I couldn't stop watching it. And it was because that movie is not only about traumas that are similar to what I experienced growing up, it's also like the Overlook Hotel. The hotel itself works like a mind experiencing trauma. If you watch that movie, it's really just little flashes of the past and flashes of knowledge that something terrible has happened mm. they keep intruding into the present day and poor little danny just has to go around and around on his tricycle until he manages to piece together what's going on he knows but he doesn't know you know he keeps saying the word murder but he keeps saying it backwards and that was sort of my first clue that and you know movies that are just like way campier and less arty but that i loved i loved the craft I loved Scream. I watched Scream over and over. These were movies that talked about forms of violence that my friends and I were experiencing. And they were the only thing that talked about it. You know, I can watch 10 Things I Hate About You any day of the week. I had a roommate that watched 10 Things I Hate About You every day for a whole semester. And I never got sick of it. It's a wonderful movie. But if I wanted to watch 10 Things About You, I had to pretend my life was a lot easier and prettier than it was to identify with it. Yeah. If I wanted to talk about what life actually felt like for me a lot of the time, Scream was a little bit closer. You know, the craft was a lot closer. So were they also role models for you? And and I think one of the questions I have that that's parallel to that question is in writing this book and into delving in the power of the symbology of the female monster Mm -hmm. has that invited you to become more fully your monstrous self oh absolutely the strange thing about this book is that I wrote it not only when I had just gotten married but um, when I what had just given birth the book is split up into daughters and wives and mothers. And that's uh, Julia Kristeva said in an essay that those were the three things a woman could be in patriarchy. And I thought that's good. And I'll steal that. (laughs) (laughs) But it was also just writing this book was a way to write myself through a lot of these roles that I felt I was being expected to perform at the time. You know, what does it mean to be the wife? What is a wife supposed to be? What does it mean to be the mother? I write in the book a little bit at the end about how, you know, I've always gotten death threats and creeps on the internet, and that's just sort of what women with our job get. But once I had a kid, it was no longer solely about, you know, oh, you're fat, or oh, you're not fat, and I want to have sex with you, but I'm going to say that in a terrible way, or whatever. It was, now it was about me being a terrible mother. Now Mm. all of these people's drama with women was being projected onto the idea that I was, you know, this terrible, devouring, castrating beast that couldn't be trusted with a child. And, and seeing that, seeing what a mother is supposed to be, seeing that my ability to speak or to argue my own point of view was suddenly being sort of refracted through this role of, but you're someone's mom. You know, you should be quiet. You should be selfless. You should be submissive. Why doesn't your husband have control of you? All of that. It was really liberating for me 
to not only, you know, sort of write through different monsters that we've made out of historical women or different fictional monsters to see what those archetypes are, to see what a scary lady looks like and why we're scared of them. It was liberating to write my way through those restrictive rules and to figure out what part of me doesn't fit in this, what part of me isn't a wife, what part of me isn't a mother, what part of me really doesn't look like what these things are supposed to look like. I've been using this movie as an example a lot, but there's a movie called Audition by Takashi Miike that I really love. Can I go on and on about how much I love it, Jacqueline? Yes. Or am I wasting time? Please do. Okay. That's all I want you to do. Yes. I love this movie because it made so many male movie critics so upset. And the reason that it upset them was that it 100% reversed the standard rules of dating violence it starts off as a rom-com and it's 100 it's filmed as a rom-com it's filled as filmed as something really wacky where this guy who's like sort of a creep and sort of a jerk to women can't find the right woman so he does like a fake audition with the goal that like there's no job for this actress but if he finds someone pretty enough he'll ask her out on a date I know, and it's like, he's a total creeper, but it's framed as like standard rom-com creepiness. And he finds this sweet little thing who's like a former ballerina and she only ever wears white sweater sets and she's so cute and meek and shy. And then she turns out to murder and it's very, very abrupt. Like the transition from rom-com to horror is like so abrupt and it's really upsetting the scene where you find out who this woman really is. And I think that you can probably hear a bunch of male critics jaws dropping to the floor. And they're like dicks falling off. Yeah. (laughs) And I love it because, you know, the movie is ultimately, I would argue, pretty sympathetic to the weird little murder housewife. You know, I mean, she does torture people to death and make them eat her vomit, but she explains she's been subject to horrible abuse her whole life. And she tries to tell this guy over and over that she's had, like, a terrible abusive experience. She says, like, several times, like, I need you, I need to be able to trust you, love only me, I've had a hard life, da-da-da, and he's always just like, yeah, whatever. 
And in the end, he doesn't take it seriously. Yeah. She's be a little bit messed up, and that's why he has no feet anymore. You know, like that's that's the end of that story. Oh my you know? god, <laughs> that's so amazing. I like that just not because I want to like stick needles in people's eyeballs, but because I can understand that. I can understand trying to explain over and over and over. Here's my pain point. Here's what I need you to not do. Here's where I'm coming from, and here's my history. And having the other person refuse to acknowledge it. You know, I'm not saying that I'm going to keep people in bags and make them eat my vomit, but I am saying I've had days where that didn't feel like my worst option, you know? Well, and it's so cathartic because you're right. It is about, it's actually so validating of the suffering and torture that most people who live life as women are made to experience over and over and over again in a way that no other genre is. I, I recently saw, I don't know, a keychain or something that basically said, after everything we've been through, men should be glad that we just want equality and not retribution. Yeah, but I don't think people want retribution. And I don't think retribution is ultimately that great of an idea. I don't think all of us hurting each other is going to lessen the amount of pain in the world. But what I do think is that these stories provide places for us to take really forbidden emotions you know they provide places for us to take our rage if you look at how many copies gone girl sold Mm. and if you look at the basic appeal of that story which is that i've tried to build my life my husband is a doofus despite everything i've tried to do to be an exceptional person or build a life i can be proud of i'm now just some random nagging wife in the midwest why don't I kill you? Why don't I frame you for my murder and put you on death row? Like there's a level of rage in that narrator in Amy that I don't think many of us want to express or could express without blowing up our whole lives. But to have a safe place to play out that rage is so important. You know? Well, and it validates, it takes seriously the suffering of misogyny in a way that very few other artistic expressions do. In a way that we don't encounter very often any other way. Yeah. Like, for some reason with you, I've landed on the anger portion of it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I wonder why. I know. When you look at, like, a slasher movie where every single kill is usually a coded sexual assault, a lot of sexual assault survivors go to those movies. And it's not just about being angry. They're not necessarily living through through the slashers, which is like the Carol Clover thing, right? That, you know, people go to these movies to root for the killers. I don't think that we always do. I think we go there to watch people, women suffer in similar ways. We go there to be allowed to admit, this is scary. This is a scary thing I lived through. This is a scary world I live in. I think being allowed to feel grief or fear is just as important as being allowed to feel anger, you know, often more so. I think so too. And I, I actually often compare people's enjoyment of BDSM to their enjoyment of horror and violent movies, right? Which is like, it's a way to encounter things that we know are genuinely uncontrollable and real in real life in a controlled setting so that we can process our emotions about them. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. In Gothic literature, I talk about this a little bit in the book, but the whole trope of the Byronic hero, the idea that he's just like a terrible, crazy asshole who's bad to every woman in his life, but that's what makes him sexy. There's some level of like, this is patriarchy as BDSM here. You're reducing the scariness of being unable to trust the person you are spending your life with 
It's really hammered home in these 19th century Gothic novels where to be a wife was literally to just be packed off in a carriage somewhere and dumped in somebody else's house and to not have any way out of that house if things went bad. It's a way of reducing that fear and that genuine vulnerability of powerlessness into a dance or a game. You know, it's a way of sort of trying to make it hot, even though it's not really that hot in life. In real life, yeah. Women throughout the ages have had that problem, you know, in heterosexual relationships where it's like, I kind of can't trust you, but I really want to, but I like you. But, you know, we live in a society where there are no laws against marital rape, but also, you know, you seem cute. It's that dance, that ambivalence that then gets sort of coded into the gothic hero of like Heathcliff, who, you know, (laughs) I think it's somewhat like he's banging his head into trees. It's strongly implied he might be an actual demon that someone just found out on the lawn and dragged in. He, you know, at one point, I think he's introduced to the reader hanging puppies. I can't remember if that's Heathcliff or Heathcliff Jr. because they're both pretty terrible. But it's just like, and as I approached him on the lawn, he was strangling puppies. And it's nuts that that's in a book. (laughs) That's just what he does. That's supposedly why he's sexy, is that there are nice guys in that novel. And Kathy's just like, no, I would literally rather die than have a healthy, productive relationship. I want the puppy strangler. Yeah. Like, give give me a man with puppy blood on his hands. That's the one for me. Like, <laughs> So uh, you've been doing some great work on Twitter, as you always do, by the way. Sadie is oh, an amazing Twitter follow. Oh. I know you don't feel that way, and yet it is observably <laughs> true. About sort of focusing on particular ones of the stories in Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers that you particularly love. And so I wonder if you can tell us about somebody who is one of the hardest sells who's a real edge case in terms of selling them to the reader, who you really want to make a case for. Absolutely. Augusta Gein, she's one of the most heavily villainized women in true crime because she's Ed Gein's mother. And the theories around Ed Gein at the time centered pretty much exclusively on the idea that she had warped him somehow, that he had an overly close relationship with her. Explain to everyone who Ed Gein is. Ed Gein is a pretty hugely formative um, serial killer. His crimes were the direct inspiration for Psycho. They were the direct inspiration for Silence of the Lambs and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He was probably not an actual serial killer. He only killed two people that we know of, and it takes three these days to be considered. But he was an necrophiliac, and he was a schizophrenic fellow who thought he could revive the dead. And he did some very, very artsy, craftsy things with corpses. He made the skin suit and he made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, whole house full of furniture made of people. He was isolated out on that farm for a long time. And the thing is, he was a really sort of soft-spoken, gentle guy. He wasn't physically imposing. He was pretty short and skinny. He was the town babysitter. Think about that. Of course. Next time you hire a babysitter. Yeah, and he, like, he actually showed some of the kids he babysat, he showed them his collection of human heads. And they broke into his house, and they knew what was in that house. If you can imagine being that eight-year-old. And they went back and told their parents, Ed Gein has, has human bodies, he has dead bodies in his house. And the reaction was, oh, Junior, when will you stop making up these stories? Because Ed Gein was so not a scary dude. Which only make us fear every dude more. That's the thing, is that that was where Psycho came from. 
we needed a story to um, explain Gein that placed him outside of humanity, that we couldn't just admit that it was the guy next door who'd done all this. Yeah. So there were a lot of papers claiming without you know, like any grounding that he was a trans woman. There were a lot of psychiatrists insisting that someone, someone who was not a white man needed to be, she blamed for him. They blamed his mother. And so his mother has passed on into true crime lore as like, she's the model for Norma Bates or Carrie's mom or Pamela Voorhees. She is this scary, castrating, evil, sun warping, you know, sex hater who just hates sex so much that she is able to take over her son's body and, you know, warp him away from ever being able to function as a heterosexual man and so on and so forth. The thing that every single, every single, every single, every single true crime account of Gein either underplays or misses entirely is that his father was a violent alcoholic who beat his mother in front of him. That's the thing. Wow. Yeah, we have turned her into the villain in this movie. Norma Bates is a single mom. Pamela Voorhees is a single mom. Carrie's mom, single. We never have a father in that story. And we have turned a story that's really pretty predictable about domestic violence, about a man who grew up watching another man hurt a woman and learning this is what men do, this is what manhood is, and who then, when he was decompensating and when he was feeling really especially powerless went out and hurt more women. We've turned that into a story about how a woman screwed up. It's like the most vehemently misogynist thing, but in order to do that, in order to talk about that story, you have to talk about all the many, many ways we have portrayed Augusta Gein as like the most terrible thing to ever exist. So she's an edge case. She was someone who, when I wrote that chapter, I was like, people are definitely going to not want to hear what I'm saying. You know, they're going to want to believe that she was just this evil sex hater who told her son to hate sex and they're going to blame her. But the thing is, there's not a lot of evidence for that. There's every evidence that Ed Gein was just a slightly elevated version of what we see every day, which is patriarchy playing itself out through generations, the loop of abuse closing and the abused becoming the abuser in time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in some ways, what I what I'm getting from both the book and from talking to you is the thought that the actual monster is patriarchy, like the real monster, and that we like there's a certain transference onto women of monstrosity when we don't just submit. Yeah, the actual violence is very often coming from these patriarchal structures. The monster is the thing that has to be killed, right? You have to make sure that the xenomorph doesn't eat everybody on the spaceship. You have to make sure that the dragon doesn't burn the village down. The monster is the thing that the hero goes out and slays. And what that means is that monster stories are often a really, really clear picture at the people in our lives and in our societies that we want to have destroyed or repressed or silenced. They have power. You know, monsters often hold tremendous power and they hold forms of power that we're not supposed to accept or own or claim as ours. But it's not the case that the monster is the threat. The threat is a social order that is premised on calling itself natural, on convincing everyone it's natural, and that can only preserve itself by harshly repressing and controlling and killing those of us who are not cis, white, non-disabled, heterosexual men. So how do we kill it? Tell me how to kill the patriarchy, Sadie. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? 
great if we found the solution on this podcast right here and now. I mean, I bet it would improve my listenership. The thing about patriarchy is that it is an inherently unsustainable social order. That's the thing, is that I think that we are ending it in a sort of granular bit-by-bit way. It's continually dissolving all the time. Because if women have any sexual agency, patriarchy is at risk. If we have birth control and abortion, if there's any sort of reproductive justice, patriarchy is at risk. If there is any recognition of gender diversity at all, patriarchy is at risk. Patriarchy is that grody old Evo psych Jordan Peterson guy telling you that there's only one way to have a family and there's only one way to make a baby and there's only one way to have good sex and there's only one way to be a good person. And we are continually dissolving it just by creating the lives we want and the families we want and the way we want them. That doesn't mean that we are not at risk of going backwards. We are going backwards right now, very, very rapidly. No There's a shit. full-scale assault, you know, <laughs> on all of those wonderful things that make patriarchy fall apart. Sex education and birth control and abortion and, you know, trans folks' rights and all of that is being really vehemently ruled back right now. But again, you don't go out and kill the monster if it doesn't pose a threat to you. You don't try to take these things away if they are valueless, if they're worthless. These things are being threatened because they are precious, and it is our job to defend them right now. And that's how we kill patriarchy. We refuse to go any further back than we've already gotten. Yeah. All right. I'm leaving it there. That's really nice. Thank you for coming on Unscrewed and talking to us about monstrous women. Oh, thank you for having me so much. Thank you for being so fucking brilliant and constantly making me have little galaxy brains. <laughs> I am I'm a living galaxy brain meme, and I think a lot of people say that not so kindly. <laughs> so tell us, do you have any events coming up for the book? Where can people find it? Give us all the good promo juiciness. I am talking through some potential events for the book. Right now I have a small toddler and it's very hard for me to travel. So I think that your closest thing to an event is going to be following me on my Twitter. And I assure you events happen on my Twitter. Like sad events and bad events, but they're there. Your Twitter is very (laughs) eventful. God, yes, it is. What's your Twitter handle? I'm just Sadie Doyle. Excellent. And the book is Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers and should be in every fucking bookstore. And if it's not, then get monstrous on them. And you can find me all the usual places. I am on Twitter at Jacqueline F. My Twitter is less eventful, very occasionally eventful. And on Instagram at Jacqueline Fable. My website is JacquelineFriedman.com. And you can find info about all my upcoming stuff. A reminder, last reminder that... If you're listening to this, the day it comes out in two days is when my live show at the Podcast Garage in Boston is. And I would love to see you there. Go to JacquelineFreeman.com slash events to see all the details there. You can find Unscrewed wherever you like to find your podcasts, Acast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever, wherever you like to get them. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and obviously make my day. I really read these things and give me five stars and a little review and it helps other people find the show. Every one of your podcasts says this for a reason because it really matters. Unscrewed is produced by me, Jacqueline Friedman, and edited by the amazing Natalia Rodriguez. Our in and out music is by the Pink Tiles and our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna. Until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.